Welcome to Solarpunk Futures, a podcast brought to you by Android Press and Solarpunk Magazine. A Solarpunk Futures brings you short stories, poetry, nonfiction, analysis, and discussion about envisioning and building a new world where humanity, technology, and nature coexist in harmony rather than in conflict. I'm Brie Castagnazzi, the co-host of Solarpunk Futures and co-editor-in-chief of Solarpunk Magazine. And I'm Justine Norton Curtin, also co-host and co-editor-in-chief of Solarpunk Magazine. Welcome to Solarpunk Futures. Welcome to episode six, everyone. We've got a great show for you today. Uh, Bree and I recently sat down with Canadian science fiction and climate fiction author Nina Montianu, and we talked about a number of things like water and its place in fiction, climate fiction and science fiction. We talked about the blurring of the lines between nonfiction and fiction in writing. And we also talked about the idea of an author's responsibility to their reading community. Uh, It was a great conversation. We're really excited to bring it to you. So without further ado, let's go ahead and go to that talk. Hi, Nina. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi there. (laughs) Glad to be here. Yeah, we're, we're really glad to have you. How are you doing today? Excellent. Excellent. Good. So, um, we are really excited to talk to you. Uh, we're going to talk to you about a couple different books and, and the, the writing community and the sort of relationship between writers and, uh, and the reading community. Uh, it's it's going to be a, a great talk. We're really excited to have you here. Uh, so, let's, let's jump right into it. Uh, you have two uh, more, rec- more recent books, uh, one of them back to 2016, but both of them... Uh, we'll talk about more, but they have a focus on water, and um, I'm curious about mm-hmm. that. Um, why you chose water in particular as a central subject for for not just one book, but for for multiple books? Um, well, that's I'm a limnologist. Uh, that's someone who studies fresh water. Yeah. And um, I'd wanted for years to help people understand and appreciate water, and one way was to create an entertaining but informative layman's textbook on water not a not a you know one of those dry things Hmm. basically a biography a celebration so i finally realized this wish with a publication in 2016 of water is and it was received with much acclaim uh thankfully including a nod from margaret atwood which (laughs) still tickles tickles me (laughs) yeah that's great Uh, yeah (laughs) so fresh from that endeavor i felt compelled to write my next novel with water as the main if not subtle character a diary in the age of water arose from this renewed passion with water um and the next spark came it was an inspiration that came when i attended a talk in toronto by maud barlow she is uh, the chairman of the Council of Canadians. Based on her book, Boiling Point, I don't know if you're familiar with her, her writing. Mm-hmm. Boiling Point is, is basically about the current water crisis in Canada. And most ah. of us don't think of a water crisis in Canada. Sure. Um, my attention was caught by a young mother and her six-year-old child up in the balcony. And I thought, what mother would take her little girl to a political talk on water in Canada? Mm-hmm. So this is often how my characters come about, just like this spontaneously. So the mm-hmm. diarist character, Lina, and her mother, Una, came about, and then the story proceeded. 
that, that's a that's a cool story <laughs> yeah um, so then that, I mean, that book, I mean, I'd, I'd like to dive into that eco novel a little, a little bit more. It's called A Diary in the Age of Water. Um, so, I mean, in, in addition to, to the little snippet you just gave us, also, you know, also without spilling all the beans uh, for folks who haven't read it, um, tell us a bit more about the novel and the role that water plays in, in the story specifically. Um, yeah. Well... The novel is basically about, um, let me just get, look at my notes. Sure. It's um, <clears throat> basically follows the climate induced journey of earth and humanity through four generations of women and their battles against the global giant that controls and manipulates earth's water. That's the major water utility. The book spans over 40 years from the uh, 2020s to the uh, 2060s and into the far future mostly through the diary of a limnologist, which is found by a future water being. <laughs> so it's a work of fiction and its premise and much of its story, however, are based on real events, people and phenomena. The dramatization of these four main characters carry the reader into consequence and accountability. Water's relationship with each character provides four different perspectives on the value of water to humanity from the personal and the practical to the spiritual and existential. So I kind of really enjoyed writing these very different characters in terms of their relationship with water. For readers with an evidence-based approach to learning about water's importance, the diarist provides interesting facts on water in each of her entries in the form of epigraphs, mostly from Robert Wetzel's uh, textbook, Limnology. Mm -hmm. She's a limnologist. So things like watershed, hypolimnion, aquifer, thalvig, clopotis gopher, and, and uh, petrichor, just to name a few. So I chose, I chose the diary format to purposefully blur the fiction from nonfiction. I was writing about both the far and the near future, and much of it was based, like our, Margaret Atwood and her books, on real events and real people. I wanted personal relevance to what was going on, particularly with climate change. This book is a lot about climate change. And of course, that's a water phenomenon. I wanted to achieve a gritty realism of the mundane. So a diary felt just right. So Lina, who's the diarist, is a reclusive, inexpressive character. She's very closed. So I thought a personal diary would help bring out her thoughts and feelings. <laughs> It's a little bit like eavesdropping, right? To make yeah, totally. it exciting. Uh, it's pretty cool. You know, you really get sucked yeah, in. That's a great idea. The diary aspect of the book characterizes it as mundane science fiction. This is a subgenre of science fiction mm -hmm. and presents an ordinary setting for characters to play out. So the tension arises from insidious cumulative events and circumstances and again it's like when you're eavesdropping things happen right mm -hmm. they slowly grow into something incendiary it's not action-packed like a thriller or something so the real events are the fuel that incite a slow burn fictional drama that blurs the reader's perception of reality and heightens its relevance i wanted to read a review speaking sure. of the the blur the blur of uh fiction and non-fiction i kind of did that purposefully so the the review in thames the thames review by marcy mccauley she talks about uh she gave me a very nice review so she talks about 
me combining. Nina Montiano combines methodologies, familiar literary motifs with text and images from nonfiction. So in the form of epigraphs from the Wetzel's Limnology. Her fiction quotes Margaret Atwood's fiction, but this passage is also quoted in full, oddly enough, in my water is. So, I mean, this is the neat thing. I think it is. So she says, Marcy says, Nina does not appear to view fiction and nonfiction as separate territories. Or if she does, then this book is a bridge between them, which is, <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted to achieve. So she adds, water is, also displays the wonder of water droplets creating a bridge. It seems like it has to be fiction, but it's real. So she's talking about that blur in, in actually both of my works. And I never really thought about it that way, but that's what I was doing. And, and the, the key of that blur is, is that it brings out an immediacy and uh, a, a, a total relevance to the reader's perception of the world. They get mixed up, in fact. And, and this, is, this is an oddity my publisher, when, uh, my editor mm -hmm. at, uh, at Inanna, whenever reading stuff and proofreading. And they made a comment, well, you need to, uh, we were, we're citing, the book, is, uh, the book cites real uh, works and sources, right? Mm -hmm. So she came across something and she said, you've got to cite this. And I said, well, I can't, it's fiction. <laughs> I made it up. So mm -hmm. even she got confused about what was real and what wasn't real. It's really funny. And the readers, uh, other readers have said, and I think it's because of this blur that they're both terrified and comforted by the story. I mean, that's an oxymoron. Sure. God. That that must have been inner conflict for the reader, right? <laughs> Never. Yeah. Characters, and they just they just felt compelled to read on. Uh, but I think it's that blur that they weren't weren't quite <laughs> sure what was real and what wasn't. And I still get questions from from readers. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean. It's Oh, yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, at least when I think of fiction versus nonfiction, there's a pretty a pretty clear line, at least in my head. Um, obviously, not the, not the case in in reality in the writing world. Uh, but I, th I I always sort of see it like, well, you know, even if your story's you know like quote unquote based on actual events, like the second you start inserting things that don't happen, it just becomes fiction, and then we just call it fiction, and it's that's just what it is, and but with a caveat attached to it. But now my brain is like exploding because there's this now like whole world of of stories that I assume are out there, I don't, or maybe you're one of the first people doing it, but where there's like a conscious attempt to, to say like, no, it's both. And there's not so much of a distinction and it's blurry and it's confusing, but it's super compelling and awesome. And you should read it. <laughs> yeah. There, there are a number of works out there right now that are like that. Margaret Atwood uh, made the point that all of her fiction is based on some element of reality. It, mm -hmm. Uh, brings its premise from something real so right. that she could not be accused of just making something up right sure. <laughs> imagining some ridiculous thing it's all <laughs> set on the precedence of something real hmm. she made that point and a lot of uh, eco-fiction right now is uh, blends in that element sure the, the use of diary I, I'm just noticing that I mean I did that on my own in my little 
my own little mm -hmm. imaginative bubble, not realizing that other authors are doing the same thing. There's quite a few of them and I can't name them all, but um, several that have come out lately that included uh, the concept of a diary, finding a diary, writing a diary and that sort of thing. And I think for the same reason, it's very compelling. It's a personal account mm -hmm. of a mundane reality that for the reader is far from mundane. You, you just have to think of Anne Frank's uh, diary. Mm -hmm. uh, when you read it, it's, it's just ordinary stuff. Right, but it's really so is totally yeah. ordinary stuff. She's talking about boys and her school mm -hmm. and this and that. But there's that over over layer of knowing the context. You know the context. She doesn't, which right. makes it even more alarming, right? Totally. This is the same thing with the diarist, uh, Lina, in in her part of the story. It's this is why the story is nested in a larger story with uh, Keo, the future being who discovers the diary. And you get a sense for where we've gone, right? Right. <laughs> Meantime, here's Lina with her diary in her world, not able to see where it's actually going. So she's a little bit like Anne Frank. She sees her world, she's troubled by it, but she doesn't necessarily see the far reaching, but the reader does. Right. Keo, right? So the reader sees and then, of course, it adds that whole other layer to the mundane again. Mm -hmm. and, and what's beautiful about that is it, well, I hope I achieved it. I'm, I'm pretty sure I did, which is why other authors are doing the same thing, is that you personalize and make highly relevant with the mundane because it's everybody else has an ordinary life like that. And then you add on to that the the extraordinary world if you will or sure. you know, the context which is not <laughs> mundane at all and then you link it by doing that so the reader is gripped i think sure. that's what happens they're <laughs> gripped um mon mundane science fiction is is just that right i mean there are other authors uh uh paolo bacigalupi his his book his latest book uh not his latest uh wind up girl is a good example of mundane science fiction, actually uh, something about knife, water knife or something like that. In fact, the first one, M Wind Up Girl, is is a really good example because it's people living their ordinary lives mm -hmm. in a world that's very not ordinary. Sure. You get that sense. Um, <clears throat> you're, you're really sucked in. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. It sounds like a, a good formula to work with. I think it is for eco-fiction. It is for mm -hmm. um, climate fiction, for this this kind of subgenre stuff, and um, and this is where solar punk comes in, um, which which is highly highly relevant and, and has an, an incredible trajectory. Um, my work, um, I was very pleased and heartened to, to see my work actually compared with solar punk to have solar punk elements in it the the key for for that for we are looking for that right we are looking for a way out essentially mm -hmm. it's it comes down to the whole narrative of of storytelling what right. stories are we telling each other mm -hmm. are they are they all doom and gloom because they they could be sure and, and a lot of them are anyway i mean that's yeah go on with that Sure. No, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is a good sort of formula for the genre in, in particular. I mean, what, I mean, eco punk, climate fiction, solar punk, 
you know, there's there's a lot of overlap, but I think for all of them, there's, you, you know, you've got this sort of fantastical on the one hand, at least in the sense that it's set in a future that may or may not happen. Um, but because we're also like, you know, trying to do real work in the real world and make real change in the real world, we, you know, we all, maybe, maybe not everybody, but I at least would would like solar punk stories to have that sort of rooted in reality feel to them, even while they take place in, you know, sometimes fantasy lands or, or, or other planets or, or whatever the case may be. Um, but yeah, it seems like a, like a good marriage of genre and, and method. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, to, to that point, um, mundane science fiction, just to go back to that, of course, mm-hmm. The key there is it's set on Earth. It's not set right. anywhere else, mm-hmm. and um, it doesn't necessarily have uh, solar punk elements to it, or or even uh, sure. um, uh, optimistic elements to it. But it can, and uh, that that's the beauty of of um, that kind of genre is that it can take those elements and make them actionable. It doesn't even have to be. Uh, the characters don't necessarily have to go somewhere. You know, it, it could be a tragedy. It's, it's sure. It doesn't have to be uh, what they say, tragedy, comedy, go somewhere, but the reader does. So mm-hmm. this is the other thing is, is the fiction something that can then incite uh, actionable, something actionable in the individual, you know, serve as a cautionary tale, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works better if of course the characters have a way out. And this, of course, is the hero's journey, where the hero does find a way through through it, right? And uh, linked to their own journey, their own personal journey. But as long as the reader gets is moved in that direction, this is where tragedy can can play a role. They they move themselves out, and a, a lot of eco fiction can do that. I think it can. Again, it's it's that. Uh, how would I call it? It's 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 touching people, touching people's souls deeply into something that that they value, something that's really critical. Uh, family, love, community, the things that that are close to us that everybody has, right? And then mm-hmm. move us forward through a, a bad scenario. This can all be helpful anyway. Can you give us an example of an event in your book where the lines between fiction and nonfiction get blurred? Yeah, speaking of examples, the whole book is an example, but I'll I'll touch on one. It's the okay, it's, it's it's in the diary. It's in Lena's diary, which makes up most of the book, and it's entitled Watershed, and it's her entry from July 13, 2049. And I'll just read a tiny bit of it. Today, Canada Corp announced that the collection of rainwater was illegal. As of today, I could be arrested for using my rain catcher and cistern. I've decided to continue using the cistern. And I've warned Hildegard not to breathe a word to anyone at school about what we're doing with the water. Thankfully, I have time to train her in the art of subterfuge before she starts grade two in the fall. (laughs) Um, So that that's just the beginning. 
because what happens with Canada Corp is they move on to more larger things, shutting off taps, uh, setting up quotas and that sort of stuff. And if you think that's science fiction, I want to read something else from another book of mine uh, where I reported some interesting things. So in 2010, collecting rainwater became illegal in several states in the U.S., in the U.S., Utah, Washington, Colorado, outlawed individuals from collecting rainwater on their own properties because according to the officials, that rain belongs to someone else. In 2015, thousands of citizens in two of America's poorest cities, Detroit and Baltimore, had their water shut off for being behind on their water bills. So there were actual water taps in their houses which had been, the, the bills had been sharply increased, something they didn't tell you. Both are inhumane examples of government-imposed oppression over what should be public and free resource water. These are true events. So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, and I know that in Oregon here where I'm at, there was an issue with rainwater collection too a number of years ago. I'm not sure what the status of the law is, but at some point someone in in central or southern Oregon got in trouble for collecting large amounts of rainwater on their property. Uh, I'm not sure what happened with the case, but that that's their their kind of rationale right is that people will hoard literally more than their share if you will right. you know, uh, yeah the, so in order not to do that you can't do it at all right, it, right. That, that makes a lot of sense really yeah not so it's um yeah i could give a number of other examples on, on where things are going in in the book that are precedented on on real occurrences and that's of course we mentioned this before um that's why it's so scary it is a scary book actually Mm -hmm. um in some very real ways right yeah well and speaking of real occurrences uh, we want to talk about your nonfiction book some too uh, it's called Water Is, The Meaning of Water. Uh, you mentioned that it got a nod from Margaret Atwood. Um, specifically, uh, she chose it for the New York Times Year in Reading. And, and the book was also described by Finnish novelist Emmy Interanta as, uh, quote, an adventurous, surprising, and inspiring book that could not feel more timely. Um, so tell us a little bit about that that book and what what people might find in it. Okay, it's, uh, I could talk forever about this book, (laughs) how it evolved and how I created it. I I wrote it in about three years, did all the research. But in fact, it was a book that that wrote itself over many, many years. Mm -hmm. So as a limnologist, I wanted, I really wanted to write a textbook, but a textbook for the lay public, for the layman, not Mm -hmm. one of these dry things like Wetzel, right? right? So I wanted it to be understandable to the lay public so if you look through it it's basically uh 12 chapters which correspond to 12 different points of view or perspectives on water which is hence the question water is Mm -hmm. dot 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 so the first one is water is magic second one water is life water Mm. is motion water is what a cool concept yeah it gets into these weird things you know goes from frequency communication water is memory 
then it goes even more weird. Water is wisdom. Water is joy. Water is prayer. Hmm. So um, what I've done, what I did was I took the expertise from primarily Europe, not some, well, North America as well, um, to, to populate these chapters with information and storytelling. And it all comes from my, I always start off with some kind of anecdote, my own personal connection, my family uh, adventures I, I've done with my son, discoveries. Uh, I'm a teacher, of course, I taught limnology and uh, an activist, environmental activist, and, and I've traveled all over the world. So I had a lot of these weird experiences. <laughs> and I found very quickly that water played a major role in all of them for me. So that, that starts it off, but then I populate it with a lot of expertise. And it's, it's um, what this book actually does is it doesn't just touch on the science. It touches on the spirituality, touches on other wisdom, areas of wisdom and truth about water. And it's meant to uh, certainly entertain, but mostly to make people wonder. It's to celebrate water. And so I bring up the anomalous properties of water. All, by the way, virtually all are life-giving and really interesting weird stuff weird but water's a weird thing very weird and i mean i could go on with that we could do a whole two three hours <laughs> and I, i've done so i've done so i've talked about water all the time um so by bringing in that interest that uh interest in in the weird things i suck people in again not unlike you know the diary right sucking people into someone's life mm-hmm. And in, a, in this sense, they're being sucked into the life of water, the biography of water, all its weird traits and things that it does and properties. And then, and then from there, I celebrate its, its uh, well, its life-giving properties and what it's doing and its evolution through those chapters. It sounds fascinating. Um, I'm definitely going to pick up a copy of it and check it out. Because, uh, like I said, that kind of, uh, the concept of water is dot dot dot. Uh, it's, yeah. it's really interesting. I can't wait to dive into this book. Yeah, Nina, that book sounds really fascinating, and I can't wait to pick it up myself. Um, so, one topic that you're particularly interested in is the idea of a writer's responsibility to her community of readers. What do you think that responsibility is, and why do writers have that responsibility towards their reading community? Oh, <laughs> there's a great question. Yeah. I think, you know, writers are reporters of the truth. We're artists, whether it's, you know, fiction or nonfiction. So, like all art, our responsibility is to express that truth in an entertaining way. And that's, again, to, to bring the reader's attention to something and to, you know, to do whatever it is we need to do. And we need to be true to ourselves, interestingly enough. In that way, we have a responsibility to demonstrate what is going on. And I, I want to touch on something about writing dystopias, particularly because my work is uh, often called that. And there's this, this often dystopias are, are couched in, in terms of a sense of doom and gloom. And a lot of eco-fiction and cli-fi or climate fiction seems to go in that area. So the thing is, though, dystopias often do reflect 
and I mentioned this earlier, in their depiction of terrible circumstance, an element of triumph, of overcoming adversity, and ultimately of hope. It's, it's the ultimate hero's journey. In fact, dystopias generally draw on a writer's optimism. Else, why would we, we write that, so these things, <laughs> right? These, these cautionary tales, because we're cautioning. Uh, a strong belief in humanity underlies much of ecofiction. I strongly believe that solar punk is a rising light of ecofiction that has emerged recently in response to the denial, despair, dilemma many of us face. When we think of climate change, we shut off, right? This kind of ecofiction features ingenuity, generativity, independence, and community. And it ultimately leads us through it all toward the light. This is the key. The hero's journey. My book is, in fact, a dystopia with elements of solar punk. When you get to the end, you'll know why. Um, so I've I've written several novels, nonfiction books as well, and I think they do the same thing. Many short stories on water and the environment. And these stories are an ongoing part of a larger narrative and journey that I've embarked on since I was a very small person, a little girl in elementary school sharing metaphoric tales on how we live on a planet as part of the good fight. I used to fight litter, by the way, and I used to inculcate the whole school with, with signs and all kinds of stuff. I, you know, I just can't stop my art. My art is who I am and what I do and where I go. It's, it's my vehicle of a larger commitment to help others find a way to live more lightly on the planet. And this is part of my responsibility, my gift to the world. So it's, it's not a static statement. It's like a social manifesto of sorts. And to, to run it back to the writer, the writer's responsibility, each of us has a gift to the world. And the writer's gift is to report the truth and to tell that story. And, and in some cases, to change that story, to change, to provide a narrative that we can follow. And again, this is where solar punk, to me, comes in very much so in terms of changing narrative, which we really need to change. First, we need to acknowledge, which we haven't been doing. We, we are doing a good job now. There's a lot of, I mean, eco-fiction and climate fiction is, a, is like a subgenre of all the different genres, from science fiction to literary fiction. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's being embarked upon by, by writers of merit. And it is moving us toward a different narrative, which we need to do. Number one, like I said, to acknowledge the world as it is, that, that's changing, incorporated in story. And, and that this is the exciting part because it can easily be incorporated through setting, through characterization, in fact, and then move it forward toward a journey that we can take. And uh, we'll start reading again because people are shutting down, right? They really are. This whole denial thing is part of that. We need, to, we need to shift it. Beautiful answer, Nina. Thanks so much. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, talking about uh, authors being uh, people who who bring truth uh, to, to their readers, to their reading community, and and specifically as uh, with the kind of dystopia versus solar punk dichotomy i guess as as an example because i think too often in the past but especially recently as solar punk has kind of gained momentum we get caught 
in that in that dichotomy, right? Like we want to we want to um, we want to distinguish solar punk from dystopia and from other punks like cyberpunk and steampunk that maybe tend to be more dystopian, and and that has happened, I think, un- unfortunately, in a, in a lot of ways with reference to like the hope and optimism factor, right? Uh, solar punk is hopeful and optimistic and dystopias and or cyberpunk, for example, then are sort of by default are not. Um, and actually our one of our poetry editors, Jerusha Wynn, pointed this out a, probably a few weeks ago when this kind of discussion was loosely going on um, in our magazine's Slack channel. Um, and because because they're really really into cyberpunk and so want you know rightly wanted to make sure that everybody got what you were just saying that that dystopias have this real hopeful and optimistic element to them they might they might not move past the apocalypse and into yeah. the utopian <laughs> realm which is where the difference between solar punk and these other genres really really does lie uh and like where the starting point and the ending point of stories are exactly. but they, they really do sh- yeah they do really share the optimism and the hope aspect and so you know we don't i mean we don't want to give cyberpunk and these other like dystopian um genres and subgenres uh, a, a bad name <laughs> right especially <laughs> especially by spreading falsehoods about them right we we want to be truthful like you said so uh, i think it's important yeah. to make that distinction when we're out there kind of having these discussions about the shifting narrative and the move towards more optimistic stories that it's a move towards more not not it's not a matter of of opposites um and that you know we shouldn't throw i guess the baby out with the bathwater to use a cliche <laughs> yeah yeah it's like it's actually a great cliche though right because right. it's so graphic true you know and it's a question of understanding what that baby is right. <laughs> you know and and defining what hope actually is and how we realize that because mm-hmm. it it and it comes down to the character on a journey every every good book has a good some several characters on a journey they're changing they're they have an arc Mm-hmm. Um, it's. I mean, I, I talk about the hero's journey. It doesn't have to be that that uh, stereotypic hero's journey per se, but it is a journey. And in that journey, they can go a number of different ways, and they learn. And it, it doesn't matter if it's set on you know some alien planet which is in bad shape or this or that. The character themselves come around, and they learn something, and they do something. And you know, we have room for all those kinds of stories. And um, we don't want to get, you know, stuck in one place, right? We have to be this way. Uh, what's happening right now with all the sh- subgenres, too, um, thankfully, with uh, the way the bookstores are changing as well, is that genres are blending, right? So you can have, literally, like my book was, uh, dis- uh, was described as dystopian with solar punk components. So when you look at that, most people would say, well, isn't that an oxymoron? That doesn't match, you know, if we're using your, your uh, definition that you gave before. But they do match, and we can make it work. And I think that story does make it work, and there are other stories that are like that. It's, it's not unlike mixing uh, fantasy with romance or, you know, all these other genres that come together. You have this element of reality that suddenly crops up with that. So it's, it's very exciting to see 
that we are doing that in story. And the key, of course, is to move forward with it. Yeah. Right, right. You know, Nina, when you were talking about the hero's journey in the context of dystopian writing, I couldn't help but think about Cormac McCarthy's The Road. Yes. Um, yeah, and spoiler alert for our audience, um, <laughs> you know, that that in, that book, in spite of all the trauma and the hardships endured by the two main characters, absolutely had a hopeful ending. Yes, um, exactly. Journey, exactly. Right? Yeah, My the man's point. journey came to an end, but his son was able to continue on. And this, the the book did not rectify the you know the whole dystopian uh, setting. It did not suddenly become utopian as as Justine was talking about before. These things don't happen um, a lot of the times in dystopian writing. But there was absolutely a hopeful element to the end of that book. Definitely. And again, it's about one character, right? How can one character save the whole world? They save the world in brackets, metaphorically, by, by saving some element, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's all metaphoric. If you want it to be literal, then you go to Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, yeah. History of the Future, for instance, right? Where, yeah. you, where, where he writes about a whole entire society through snippets. He does that really, really cool the way he did yeah, that. Yeah, really well, huh? Yeah, but, but he's moving. He's, he's got a bazillion characters, really. And he's got a society moving forward. That's different. If you portray it that way, then you can do that. But if you're portraying one character, a microcosm of a larger uh, scenario, it's, it's, you know, you're not going to save the world, literally. But it's the metaphor part that comes through. And that's what we have to pick up on. The possibility, right? Mm-hmm. The whole- yeah. Yeah. That, and that's, I think that's really true of short stories, too, versus novels or even even shorter things like novellas but that are still longer than short stories where you've got much less space and so you know you're not gonna you're not gonna give a a whole history of how the utopia got in place or or how it was built or what happened before you might give hints that allow the reader's imagination to run with it and then create those histories themselves Uh, but you know with a short story you've got to kind of you don't have to but be maybe best if you focus on you know an, an aspect and just sort of dive into that um because you've only got so much space to tell a compelling story so yeah <laughs> you don't want to waste it on information dumps yeah with uh, with short story you can't afford that but you know what you can do is you have effect and then the reader mm-hmm. takes it that's the best kind of short story where the reader then takes it and goes with the glimmer of hope they get the hint and then they they create mm-hmm. their own story and then that becomes memorable for them. It's really odd, you know, less is yep. more is this the big the big thing here in writing. It's true. Yeah. And and it's achieved through metaphor, all the metaphoric links that the reader picks up on on a subconscious level, right? And mm-hmm. then they build, build and build, and then they go somewhere with it. Yeah, I love that about storytelling. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Well, unfortunately, we are now out of time. Uh, But Nina, thank you so much for coming on to Solar Punk Features and talking about your writing with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I I can't. Yeah, already I can't wait to to dive into both of the books. Um, I'm going to I'm going to go buy them as soon as we get done here. Um, So, yeah, yeah, thank you for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Solar Punk Futures podcast, a production of Android Press 
brought to you by Solar Punk Magazine. To hear more episodes or learn more about Solar Punk Magazine, visit www.solarpunkmagazine.com.